quiz this question that happens every year around this time, sometimes gets answered and sometimes doesn't, which is, why did he come? Um, It was forced on me in an unusual way again this year. And that was uh, reading uh, the newspaper on December 9th, and there was the declaration that once again there had been uh, cattle mutilations in Colorado unexplained. And of course, immediately, all of the guys who believe in UFOs and aliens uh, rose to the surface and said, we, we know what this is all about. You know, we know it's these, these travelers who have come and they take these cows apart, they do all kinds of things, and, and then they, they zap off. And then you have to stop and say to yourself, so these aliens have enough brilliance to master intergalactic travel and have nothing better to do with that brilliance than mutilate a few stray cows in Colorado and make designs in wheat fields in rural parts of Britain. It really stretches credulity, doesn't it? I mean, it goes a little beyond. You know, these, these brilliant creatures and somehow they they're mystified by cows and have to take them apart it's pretty strange it stretches credulity all the way but the truth is for an awful lot of people the idea that god would become man and dwell among us is just as incredulous it sounds more like a fairy tale it sounds more like a myth More like a story than something made up than something actual and factual. And some of your neighbors and mine, some people around us, don't get it. And sometimes I wonder if we completely get it. We have our own way of reckoning this even in the church. There are those who would say, well, Jesus came, even from our pulpits, well, Jesus came just to be an example to us. Well, there's no question that there's an exemplary aspect to his incarnation. But if if all he did was come to be an example to us, we're lost because you and I can't match that example. He was both God and man. We're not. He was sinless. We're not. He was omnipotent and omniscient and all of the things that belong to his deity, and we are not. And so what is it that exactly we're supposed to follow by example? That's, you've got to be very careful when you, when you unpack that idea. And then there's others who say, well, he came simply to show us how much he loved us. But that doesn't work either. Because if all he did was show up on the scene, and by showing up, somehow tell us that he loves us, but didn't do anything for us, but left us in our sin and condemnation, there's nothing accomplished. It means nothing. And so we're forced to go back to the words of Scripture and search out those passages that tell us distinctly, that are clear, that are purpose statements in the Bible that say, why has the Son of Man come? And, and for this week at least, and possibly next week, I want to concentrate only on the things that Jesus specifically said he came to do. So that we get an idea from his perspective how he understood his own incarnation and his own mission.
we can go to no better source than Jesus' own teaching, his own words, to get a grasp of what the incarnation really means, what this is all about. And so what I want to do is take you through a series of at least, that I've been able to find, 14 statements by Jesus in the Gospels that relate specifically to why he came. 14 reasons why he says he came to earth. And for the first of those, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. The setting here is one that's familiar to most of you, if not all of you. And if you're not a Christian here today, I hope you'll pay special attention to why it is Jesus said he came, rather than maybe what you've heard from just men theorizing or imagining or wishing or conjuring up on their own. The temptation of Jesus had just taken place. He had been baptized by John, and he had been driven by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness and was tempted there for a period of 40 days. And he returns from that time, one of the other narrators tells us, filled with the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. We get a lot about him, don't we, that it was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He was found worshiping corporately with those who claimed that they belonged to the living God. And at this point, he stood up to read. It was common in the synagogue in that day. Any young man over the age of 13 was permitted to be a reader of the Scripture in the church service that was in the synagogue in those days. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. They read on a rotating basis, and he got the portion that was supposed to be read that day. It would have been read in synagogues all around Israel on this day. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. So he's quoting now from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now look precisely at the wording that's here. Jumping back to verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me too. This is a purpose statement. This is why I have this anointing. This is why I am here. And this he divides up into three short phrases. Why is it that he's here? Why is it that he has invaded human space and time? Why has he come to this earth? And first and foremost, he calls attention to this. First, to proclaim liberty to the captives. 
to proclaim to those who are both in bondage to sin and in bondage because of sin that there is a means whereby people are set free from their guilt and their condemnation and the mastery of sin in their lives. First thing he says I've been given the Holy Spirit to do is to tell the world that there is deliverance from the bondage of sin, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And secondly, to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. That, that all of human history has but a dim glimpse of the truth of who God is and what His eternal purposes are. And I've come to proclaim to you sight, truth, so you can know what it is God is doing and who He is and what He's about. But then He ramps it up incredibly in His third statement. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. But now, not just to proclaim, but to actually do. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To set at liberty, to do the work that is necessary to set us free from our guilt and our sin. To provide the means, to be the way whereby we can be delivered from our sin and our condemnation and our wrong standing before God the Father. I've come to do that, he says. And this he wraps up in one phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to declare that now is the time of God's grace when for 4,000 years the world has been wrapped in darkness and unbelief, and has, and very few have even understood that the Messiah would actually come. But now I've come to proclaim to you that God is giving grace. He's pouring out His unmerited favor on all who will believe. And that's what I've come to do, to tell the world that God is a God of grace when we need it so desperately. That's powerful. It's amazing that he wraps all of this up in the proclamation of that grace. Because it's in the believing of the message that people are transformed by the message. It's a a mystery that happens. Somehow the gospel enters the heart of man and produces life there that produces belief that believes the gospel that's entered into the heart of man. I don't know how that works. But Jesus said, that's what I've come to do. And I, as the Son of God, have been anointed by the Spirit of God to do these things. To, pr- to proclaim that there's liberty for the captives, that there is the recovering of sight to the blind, that you can live in the reality of life as God knows it, and that there is, and to set the captives free by the work that he would do eventually at Calvary. This is why Jesus said he came. So all the theories and all the things that people want to imagine, they can pump a whole lot of stuff into this idea. And around the Christmas time, as you see the commercials and the commercialism, all sorts of ideas will be raised about why Jesus came. But he knew why he came. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that would have had a special ring in the ears of the Jewish believers that were gathered that morning. Because they lived on a 50-year cycle of economy. That 50-year cycle worked this way. Every 50 years, they declared a year of jubilee, a day of grace, a year of 
freedom. And what happened was, if you had a mortgage, your mortgage was paid. If you were serving somebody because you owed them money, the debt was canceled. If you had surrendered some of your land in order to pay off debts and other people were renting it from you, it reverted back to you. All debts were canceled. All slaves were set free. All things were forgiven and set back to right. And Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do. All of those 50-year those intervals that happened in the history of Israel's economy, he said those were all types and shadows of this one time I have come that there may be a true year of jubilee, a true year of his favor and of his grace. And there is forgiveness, not because you've earned it, but because he is gracious and says, I forgive. Man, that's, that's fortunately where we still live. We're still in this age, this year of jubilee that lets us know that there's forgiveness for all who were captive to their sin. He makes another very pointed statement just further down in this same chapter, drop down later into verse 38. After this time, and he goes through a few other of, of incidents, and then it says in verse 38 that he arose and he left the synagogue, and he entered Simon's house, that's Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them. And would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. Why? For I was sent for this purpose. You would have thought, well, wait a minute. I would think the major purpose would be just what you were doing the night before, healing the sick with the various diseases and casting out the demons. And he did that as part of the testimony of who and what he was and of the the coming of his kingdom. But he said, the truth is, this is what I'm sent to do, to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to let the world know that, that the kingdom of God is invading humankind. And from this point on, it's going to continue to grow. And eventually he will come and he will conquer all and rule over all. Beloved, this is the message we carry to the world. The kingdom of God has encroached on human history and has been growing ever since that point in time. And all who will believe can be part of that kingdom. And when he comes, they'll receive their king and their their God. And if they do not hear the gospel and believe that he will come and he will vanquish those who are not his own. It's the gospel of the kingdom. He said, I've come to preach this. Why was that so important in comparison to the ministry that he was giving to them? He'll he'll tell us that later in the gospels when he talks about why it's so important to deal with sin in our lives. 
When he says if you're bound by a sin, say it's your, your right foot and it offends you. You walk in a way you shouldn't be walking. He says you should cut it off. Be done with it. Because it's better to enter heaven lame than it is to have two feet and be bound in your sin and end up in hell. Or if your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's, it's better to enter heaven without that right hand than it is to keep both hands and, and wind up in hell. Or your right eye, if, if that's the problem, it's better to pluck that out and enter heaven with only one eye than it is to, to have both eyes and enter hell. And the point simply is this. People will enter heaven in all states of physical disrepair, but they will not enter heaven apart from hearing and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've come to proclaim the gospel, and I've got to go to the next town and the next town and the next town and tell them. And if it was that important to the Son of God, how much should it carry importance with us that that gospel still be preached to the world, still be preached to our neighbors and to our classmates and to our families and to the cities around us. It was so important that the Son of God Himself would say, rather than heal you right now, they need to hear. He knew why He had come. He had been sent because He alone could give those words of eternal life. And He preached the gospel where He went. He told them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Turn. As a statement of purpose, even over and above His earthly ministry and everything else that He did, I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. From Luke, we find another statement of similar impact over in Matthew chapter 9. Turn back just to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9. Again, here we have a situation that may be familiar to most of you, if not all. And it's the calling of Matthew to become a disciple of Jesus. Matthew, if you recall, was a tax collector himself. Verse 9 starts to unfold the narrative. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, he apparently went to Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, that obviously was not the kind of things that the religious people liked. They didn't like the idea that Jesus would allow himself to be surrounded by sinful people. We can get that way in the church, can't we? We don't want, to, we don't want sinful people around us, for heaven's sakes. We only want nice people around us. Well, then how are sinful people supposed to hear the gospel? Uh, this, is, this is part of where he is. But the Pharisees were upset. Verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. Quoting from the Old Testament, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. A changed heart is more important than an outward 
performance. For I came not, here's a statement of purpose again, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A few years ago, it was the standard advertising campaign of the U.S. Marines to announce that they were looking for a few good men. You saw it on their print ads. You saw it on their television ads. You heard it in their radio ads. We're looking for a few good men. Jesus didn't come looking for some nice people that he could save from their sins. But he came to call the unrighteous to himself. I didn't come to call the nice people. I came to call sinners. What an incredible statement that is. Do you realize then that you cannot be one of his unless you first acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of one who saves sinners. You can't bring anything good. That's not what he's about. And you say to him, well, I was, I was never really as bad as, as that person over there. I mean, I know their life, and their life's pretty pitiful, and you know, I never did any of that stuff. And he says, you, you think that matters to me? That you have your own righteousness to bring to the table? No, the people I save are sinners. The people I save are the people who can't save themselves. The people who have no righteousness of their own to bring to the table. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you say, oh, this gospel, it's for those nice people. Perish the thought. This gospel's for you if you know that you are lost and undone and need a Redeemer and one who forgives. And beloved Christians, this is where we stay. We stay with a God who saves sinners. God who saves ugly people like you and me. Fallen people like you and me. People who continue to abuse His grace day in and day out. People who in spite of knowing the truth of the gospel and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit still fail every moment of the day. But He is a Savior of sinners, you see. And that's where our hope is. That he called not to come, he didn't, he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who know their need, those who are aware of how desperate their condition is, and those are the ones he is perfectly willing to save. What a glorious Christ he is. And he came for this purpose. It's not an ancillary thing. Number of, um, I, I was reading a while back in a book. Uh, actually, no, I was listening to a uh, lecture by D.A. Carson. As some of you remember him when he was here with us. And he recalled the time when he was at school in England. He was studying at Cambridge. And as he was earning his Ph.D. there, he was uh, doing a number of, of lectures around. And uh, a gal on campus was a Christian, and she had a... A roommate who wasn't saved, and she asked this roommate if she would come and hear Carson speak. The roommate's name was Joy. And so this roommate came and she heard Carson speak, and she was pretty nonplussed. 
She didn't like it a whole lot, but the roommate was persistent and said, if I could arrange a chance for you to talk with Carson, would you talk with him? And she said, sure, I'll, you know, I'll talk to anybody. She was pretty much an atheist. And so she met with Carson, and they talked for a little while. And, and he said, boy, he said, I, somehow I've not communicated the gospel well to you. Let me go back over it. And he did, and she didn't seem to buy it. And so he said, would, if I gave you a book, would you read it? And she said, sure. And it was a book from John R.W. Stott, who was very popular in England. Then Stott's uh, uh, almost retired now. and uh, But he, he gave her this book from Stott on the cross of Christ and wondered if she'd read it, uh, Basic Christianity, and she said sure. And she read it, and she came back and she met with him again. They went for a walk. And he said, what did you think of the book? And she said, well, what I got from the book was that God saves nice people, and I'm not a nice person. And he said, then you've missed the gospel. Then you've missed the gospel. He saves sinners, not nice people. The Lord continued to work in her heart, and over time she came to Christ, and then, and then he ended up marrying her. I don't think you have to do that with every convert. <laughs> but, but that's what happened in that case. But how many people around us, how easy is it for it even to, to creep into our own hearts and minds that this gospel and these truths are just for nice people, for good people, for church people. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I came to call sinners. And if you're a sinner, you qualify. He's calling you. He's calling you to forsake your sin and to trust him. He's not in search of a few good people to save, but, but people who will take him as their worthiness and renounce any worthiness of their own. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus continues to clarify his own ministry, his own understanding of why he's here and what he's come to do. I love this passage. We can pick up in verse 20, but the immediate context isn't as important to us as the summary. Nevertheless, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, these were two of Jesus' disciples, they came up to him, she came up to him with her sons. Kneeling before him, she asked him for something. This, this, is, this is mom, isn't it? Mom's going to come up and ask Jesus for... It's, it's kind of like when your, your mother goes to, to chasten the, the class bully who hits you. It, it, it just doesn't feel right. She asked him for something, and he said to her, Well, what do you want? She said to him, Well, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. I, I, want, my, I want my boys to have the two most prominent places in your kingdom when it comes. That's just a, a good mom's heart. Jesus answered, well, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able, and he understood. They had no concept of what that meant yet. And so he, he said to them, well, you will drink my cup, but here's part of that cup. 
To sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. You see, my cup is to be completely submitted to the Father and to not worry about my own advancement. Can you drink from that cup? Because that would be the opposite of asking for the position of sitting on the right hand and the left hand. They, they got the idea. At, but what was worse is when the, the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They wanted, they, they're just upset they hadn't thought to ask first. Somebody got to them before it. And then Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. This is what everyone in the world strives for is a position and and power and authority. It shall not be so among you. When Christians strive for positions of prominence and authority and leadership in the church, it is horrendous. It's contrary to the spirit of Christ. And he, he lets them know that it's not so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Don't you understand? Now here, he's going to use that phrase in one way here. He uses it in an an opposite way in another passage. But here the point is this. If you're going to be a politician, and the way that you're going to achieve your position is by kowtowing to everybody and slaving after their love, then that's all you're ever going to be is a slave to them. They're going to call in their markers, and you're, you're not going to have any true authority at all. You're a slave to all those who you've, you've tried to influence. And then he says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, and uses himself, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. Statement of purpose. This is why I came. I didn't come to have all of you lift me up and make me king right now. My father will do that. No, I came to serve. But then he's specific about how it is he came to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to serve abstractly. I... I have often wanted to use in the situation if I were to be, if, if ever there was a, a time, uh, of course this couldn't happen in my own life, but if ever I were stopped by a police officer for breaking the speed limit, um, it, purely hypothetical, uh, if ever that could happen in my life, what I would like to say to the officer when he comes back to the window is, You're supposed to be a public servant. Serve me by tearing this up and moving on. (laughs) I pay your salary. That's what this is about. You're a public servant. Take care of it. But you know instinctively that's not what public servant means. A servant, the way Jesus is talking about being a servant here, sometimes this happens in, in church leadership too, but we won't go too far down that road. Sometimes... People think, well, if you're supposed to be leadership in the church, that means you serve me, so now I'm going to tell you what I want. But that isn't the way it worked with Jesus. He said, no, I'm going to serve you the way... uh, Imagine, if you would, that you were a a wealthy person and you had... uh, You're you're the, uh, the head of the Von Trapp family. And you've got all these kids and you don't have a wife and... You need someone to educate them, to teach them, so you hire a governess. Remember the sound of music? 
Now, the governess serves the children, but the governess serves the children by carrying out the will of the Father, not by carrying out the will of the children. Jesus said, I've come to serve, but not to serve by carrying out your will, but by carrying out my Father's will, to give my life a ransom for many. That's how I'll serve you. Maybe you want me to to make you sit on my right hand and my left hand, but that's not how I'm going to serve you. Maybe, maybe you just want me to get you a better job, but that's not how I serve you. Maybe you just want me to take care of this, this problem in your life, but that's, that's not where I primarily serve you. I serve you by being the sacrifice for your sins, that you might be cleansed from your iniquity. That's how I'll serve you, and that's how I'll serve you best. I think Skye has read this too often because now she's serving me meals that I don't like but are good for me. (laughs) She's followed this same idea. I'm eating green things and I'm not happy and it's not green jello. No. This is what the Son of Man came to do. Not to be served, but to serve. If there was one place where I could just go back right now and spend time on the humility, the humbleness of our God, it would be drawn from this passage. It's one of the attributes of God that I've never heard preached on in my entire life. But God is humble, exceedingly humble, worthy of all praise and all glory. He came into the world and the Father said, let the angels worship him. But he never demanded it from a human being. Complete humility. What a Christ he is. And he came for this purpose, to give his life as a ransom for many. Last one. We have 55 seconds to do it in. I can't do it in 55 seconds. (laughs) We'll have to close it there. Four things that we've looked at so far that Jesus said were the reason for his own incarnation. First, that he might proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to be the one who proclaims the acceptable year of God's favor. And secondly, he was sent for this purpose, to preach the kingdom of God to the towns where he was. That's an immediate one, which then devolves on us. We'll see that later in our study. And then in Matthew 9 that he did not come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners, which is the only hope for you and me. He came to call us who had nothing to give him, but how he delights to give. He's calling us as sinners. And lastly, that he came to save and to serve. And how? By giving his life as a ransom for many. Why Christ came should never be reduced to a single soundbite, but should be taken in the fullness of how he understood his own incarnation, his own ministry. And beloved, as we gather in this holiday season, as we will in in just a short time around our homes and families, and we celebrate the coming of this 
Savior into the world. Take just a few moments that day to remember why he came, how he understood why he came, and lavish in it. Lavish in the love and the mercy and the grace that he bestowed when he took on human flesh and walked among us. Father, if these things weren't in your word, we wouldn't believe them. If they hadn't been passed on to us by those who heard and saw and were witnesses, we would think this is not as credible as aliens invading cow pastures. But it is true. It's true because you have said it. It's true as we hear the voice of God himself in Christ saying, this is why I've come. Grasp it. I've come to do transcendent things, to invade space and time and human history, to deal with the the most critical of things. To deal with the human race's bondage in sin. To deal with, with mankind's just condemnation. To be a ransom. To deliver the good news that there is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to the living God through believing in this Christ Jesus and His atoning death to give the good news, to save and to call sinners to himself. Oh, these are precious gifts indeed. And how we thank you that they come to us from the lips of Christ himself so that we don't have to speculate, but can hear in your own words that you've sent him for us. Oh, how we give you thanks and praise for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Anyone with a comment or a question before we close this morning? Something you'd like to add to the mix? Nope. Oh, over here, Tom. Hold on one second. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Mm-hmm. Now what I'm thinking about is what you said, how the, pre, the priests were looking for a few, oh, the Marines were looking for a few good men. Mm-hmm. And with the topic now in your sermon, well, how, where is the road map hmm. where if it's oh if the bar is set so high and the way is so exclusive hmm. I'm, I'm struggling with finding out what makes what makes a good Christian and hmm. where the things people need to do to hmm. get there specifically hmm. if this gate is so narrow I mean, how do you get through? How do I see the way? Mm. Excellent question. 
The simplest answer is Jesus' own words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What makes for a Christian is the same thing that makes for a good Christian, which is utter dependence upon Him, that He is all my righteousness, that He is God's favor to me. And this is the exclusivity that there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved but Jesus Christ. That's the narrowness. It's Him alone. But He is the whole answer to the problem. His righteousness accounted to us by faith. Then, let me take it one step further, then He ascends on high and sends the Spirit so that we might be filled with Christ and, be, and have the power to be conformed to His image and to obey Him. And let me clarify, not to obey the law, but to obey Him. Okay, thank you. Anyone else has excellent question? Thank you. Anyone else? Yep, in the back there. Pat. I'm not sure I heard all that question, but I think I heard most of it. I'm not sure I heard that question, but I think I heard most of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, my reaction to that is, uh, to grow as a Christian, we can't live in yesterday. Mm. We can't live in tomorrow. We live today. Mm. And we, we don't obey Christ out of our own power, but mm-hmm. by depending on Christ to give us the grace and the mm-hmm. if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So anyhow, that's yeah, my no. comment. Excellent. Total dependence upon him for everything we have need of. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great. Anyone else? Give a last call. You're so quiet this morning. All right. Will you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Oh